welcome to Cloud at Microsoft Expert Roundtable. I'm Sherry Bettine and I'll be your host today. We are the IT Showcase team and we love to talk to you, our customers, about how Microsoft does IT. Today I'm here with many of our cloud experts that run cloud-based services here at Microsoft. This is your opportunity to ask direct questions of our SMEs and receive candid answers. You can start posting your questions now in the live Q&A window. And I'm going to ask our experts to introduce themselves. And we'll start with you, Lyle. Hi, I'm Lyle Dodge, a Senior Program Manager in Core Services Engineering. Good morning. I'm Mark Jacobs, Senior Program Manager in Cloud Services Security in our Core Services Engineering team. Hi, I'm Robert Venable. I am a principal architect within Core Services Engineering. Hello, and I'm Joe Mazzotta. I'm the Senior Program Manager in the Cloud Management Services team within Core Services Engineering. And good morning. My name is Rob Bedard. I'm a Senior Service Engineer in Core Platform Engineering. We're going to make every effort in the next hour to answer all of your questions. However, if we don't, we'll stay behind and continue answering questions and post them along with the video at Microsoft.com slash IT Showcase. So let's get started. Now that cloud is a $20 billion business for Microsoft and Amazon, what are enterprise IT shops most focused on enabling in the cloud? PaaS? data integration, SaaS integration. Joe? Yeah, so as, as we talk to uh, enterprise customers at executive briefing centers and um, through our various um, IT showcase channels, um, it's very common that large enterprise customers are um, focused on, uh, irrespective of where they are in their journey, whether they're starting off in the cloud or whether they're um, fully mature in the cloud and leveraging, say, both uh, Microsoft and uh, Microsoft Cloud and AWS. Um, there's a number of, of uh, focus areas. Um, one is around modern app uh, uh, modernization of applications, where um, rather than running a, a, a workload, say, on a, a dedicated virtual machine, um, you can break that workload down and run it as microservices or run it as um, capabilities across a number of cloud services um, such as um, Azure provides Azure websites where Azure manages the underlying platform and the underlying infrastructure and you simply deploy your application code to uh, application website um, and Azure will run that code on um, Azure websites. The other aspect is around cultural change as well. Um, to achieve digital transformation, many enterprises are focused on uh, upskilling their employees, uh, um, modernizing their processes, reducing the friction between processes so that they're delivering capabilities to their end customers as quickly as possible, leveraging cloud capabilities. So with the modernization of apps, is that getting rid of monolithic applications out there? In some cases, it's not necessarily um, getting rid of applica uh, monolithic applications. It's um, breaking down those monolithic applications and leveraging native cloud capabilities that are better suited to the technology. So for example, um, one area is, um, say for example, I mentioned uh, Azure websites. And so if you think of uh, traditionally on-prem, uh, if you're running a virtual machine that has IIS uh, running your websites and, and you manage both the software, the infrastructure, the connectivity, the security to all of that, um, and with Azure and, and the movement to the cloud, you can take, the, you can um, decouple the code from all of the overhead and management that you provided or you owned on-prem. You can decouple that code and run the code on Azure websites where Azure provides the manageability operations and the infrastructure and you're focused as an enterprise you're more focused on delivering capability and uh, iterating on your code rather than focusing your skills yeah. and your resource resources on managing the infrastructure simplifies things yeah. for you it does yeah i'd Joe. actually go ahead. i'd actually build on that and say um, it's not just about 
getting, getting away from managing the infrastructure, but thinking about your business processes. So you have capabilities now where you do not have to go through a procurement cycle to get hardware, right? So you can spin up a hardware in seconds. Um, and so you can think about doing things you wouldn't be able to do on your on-prem environment, which is I can use scale-out architecture, I can be able to use event-driven um, processes. So I can think about if my business process was big batch data, for example, processing and reporting, can I move to more real time, right? So it's, it's not only just not doing with the infrastructure, but taking advantage of the cloud and, and the unique capabilities that the cloud will give you. Do you think there's a value there in what Joe's talking about, was like almost like componentization, right? Absolutely. Because one of the things you, we kind of worry about sometimes is you'll see applications that, in Sherry's example, the monolithic play, mm -hmm. we move it to IaaS, and then the next step is it goes to a PaaS, yeah. PaaS play, but it's still architecturally still that kind of monolithic yeah. lump, and we've really not really thought about what it meant to go to be more cloud-native applications, kind of tear it down into its you know individual work streams, into its individual business processes. Have we seen a lot of that? Do we is that something we can we're concerned about internally? So yeah, so um, just like every IT shop, we build applications, and you know they're going to be interior applications or maybe an analytical application, um, and these these things are built on hey, I bought a box, and so I'm going to buy either a bigger box or I've got one box, and how many things can I run on that one box? When you think about uh, componentizing modularization of your applications mm -hmm. and think about that you can scale these things independently mm -hmm. like I can scale my front end or my back end independently um, it kind of helps build that um, um, that uh, insight into your application to where um, if I have um, a, an application that I need to have scale on a certain component, maybe a business rule component, or maybe just the front end component, I can do it. But I can't do it if I'm monolithic in yeah. nature, right? So it's really about you know using some good architectural principles about componentization. Microservices is a great way to go. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think another nice thing here is <clears throat> just the separation of concerns that you can do at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned the word insights. Um, I've seen a lot of our software engineering teams will use application insights and essentially they're separating out the logging and telemetry, yeah. you know, the telemetry event ingestion concerns out of on-premise and cloud and they push it all to a single source and then they can use something like Kusto query language to go give them rich intelligence across right. a business artifact that traverses many IT systems. So the, while we may take a box from on-prem and essentially lift it up to the cloud, you have the ability to, to essentially do inversion of control on your different separations of layers yeah. and take those out. And That's right. Maximize value of the cloud while you're bringing the rest of your technical debt along. Yeah. And you can actually gain some efficiency so you can log to cheaper storage. So I don't have to log to my SQL DB if I don't want to. I can actually log to Blob or Azure storage and pay you know fractions of the cost for my login. Great. How has the migration from on-premises data centers to the cloud influenced your security approach? Hmm. For you, Mark. Thanks, Sherry. Um, it's changed our culture quite a bit. In fact, uh, when we moved to the cloud, we, we came from that data center view, which was somebody is controlling and centralizing uh, the monitoring of our cloud, res uh, of our VM resources, but now in the cloud, that's all changed. We have the notion of de DevOps, where we now have teams that are not only responsible for building these applications, but they have some responsibility for monitoring them as well. Uh, that's, a, that's a fundamental change, where we are asking teams to get involved and to watch their applications to use and leverage some of the tools within Azure today, such as log analytics, uh, and really get those insights into the operations of their running applications. Now, we're not asking teams to become security experts, but we are asking them to take uh, a, a definite involvement of their day-to-day -day operations of their applications. So that might have some security components and they have responsibility there. 
So how do you keep dev teams informed of their security responsibilities? <laughs> That's not that easy. Uh, there is a, quite a bit of guidance that needs to go hand in hand with this shift. Um, we need to, wherever possible, provide an easy button so that teams simply have security as a component of their regular operational tasks where it's transparent to them. They're not necessarily thinking about this as a security component, but just as an operational component. We've heard terms like secure DevOps or DevSecOps. I've heard other terms here. Yes, security needs to be highlighted, but it shouldn't interfere. It just needs to be a natural part of the application team's processes. So guidance, yes, that's important. Tooling to help teams onboard as uh, easily and efficiently as possible. Uh, we leverage different tools that we've built within core services engineering just for that to make it easier for teams to do the right thing in terms of configuration and in terms of monitoring their applications. Okay. Mark, you mentioned a nice point there. You kept, a few times you mentioned development teams. And I think that's one of the trends that I've seen is just the, the localization of responsibility mm -hmm. to the development teams that are developing the products. Um, in, in really good teams, what I've seen is part of their, their daily stand-up is Let's open up the Azure portal that has a subscription. That is our application among prod dev tests, any arbitrary number of environments. And that brings up the security center, that brings up recommendations as far as optimization cost and other things. I know you guys, can, can you tell the audience a bit of what you guys have been building internally and that I know you work with Azure Security Center because I think some of the stuff that you guys have released, because you said the DevOps, secure DevOps, what, what has you know, core services engineering and operations been doing sure. to help roll stuff into the problem? Yeah, thanks, Lyle. So uh, to your point, there are tools within Azure today that teams should leverage on, on different scales. Azure Security Center, Center is definitely one of them. And with it brings a lot of capabilities to those teams so they can monitor their applications, get recommendations on how to improve their risk posture, uh, for their running platforms that they have within the portal. Now, to that end, we also wanted to scale this out. And we wanted to do it quickly across core services engineering. So internally, we built something called the DevOps Toolkit. DevOps Toolkit is, is a PowerShell module that enables teams through scripting to quickly and consistently configure their applications, their subscriptions for core controls. Those core controls consist of things like enabling Azure Security Center, turning on the monitoring capabilities, making sure that they're equipped so they can see what is happening within their application through other tools like log analytics. OMS is, is one of those. Uh, but doing it in a way that becomes consistent, becomes easy for teams to deploy. And we should say, that's available on GitHub today, right? The, yes, it is. We publicly, publicly released that. It's, I think it's an AZ DevOps Toolkit or something like that is what we call it on GitHub. I forget. I'll go. We can send that out afterwards. We'll, yeah, we can provide a short link to that. You, you talked about the culture of security being in, and Lyle touched about this, like where you, we're, we're kind of decentralizing a lot of the management, a lot of the the operations as part of your point about the daily stand-up, um, where you know maybe you are checking in on security, maybe you are checking in on cost. Did somebody do something silly overnight that we need to go remediate around? I'd be interested to hear about it from a security standpoint because when you decentralize, I mean historically that's a very central process. And I you know when we very very started our journey out to the cloud, security's posture was well steady on nothing's going right. How's that been as a security team to transfer? To transform from that very, I don't know, I don't want to say ivory tower, but very centralized process to go, okay, we're now going to almost relax a little bit here to let people go do things, but at the same time protect assets. How's that changed in the security team? Uh, great question, because <laughs> <laughs> we haven't lost sight of that central role right. for monitoring. There is still that component. Mm -hmm. So. 
uh, within our own Cyber Defense Operations Center, there are still teams and people that are watching, mm -hmm. that are monitoring our environment, looking for anything that is suspicious. So that, that still exists today. Mm -hmm. And uh, across Microsoft, we have partner teams that are looking at the Azure environment. Mm -hmm. But to your point, there are some aspects of security that the app team is best suited to really understand what is normal. Right. And they need to be involved yeah. in, in understanding this. Now, some of that's involving some new capabilities that maybe they've never thought about before. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, if you talk to an application team, they may have never given any thought to something like an incident response plan. Mm -hmm. An incident response plan doesn't need to be really complex, but it does need to talk about what do you do if I notice something okay. suspicious going on. In my daily stand-up, if I see something in Azure Security Center that has come through as an, a, a suspicious event, who do I notify? How do I engage? So th app teams need to think about and evolve their own programs so that they can then be effective uh, in terms of their monitoring mm -hmm. of their applications. So there's still, a, there's still a small scale in terms of the application team and what they are responsible for, but mm -hmm. we are backing that up centrally uh, for, for mm -hmm. all of Microsoft. And I think, so I think security comes up in every single conversation that we have with enterprise customers. Yes, I think it does. We have such a phenomenal story here. Uh, I think if we step back, uh, everything we've talked about is not our own glue. Everything we've talked about is capability. There are capabilities that enterprise customers can consume today. They can set up their security posture in the cloud, uh, secure their resources, be able to uh, uh, implement policies across their resources, their resource groups, and their Azure subscriptions, and then monitor that. Uh, they can still have the ability to have their local DevOps teams monitor that, and then also have the ability to have uh, central log collection through uh, log analytics, mm -hmm. so that security, central security, gets an insight into kind of global security events within the resources that are being consumed in the enterprise um, on the public cloud. So I'm going to completely cannibalize my, my my statement at the end, but I think it's uh, it's to your point, it's. We always used to have to deal with security risk postures. We always used to have to deal with, I shouldn't be wasting money in the cloud. There's just a different way to do it now. Yeah. And so now right. we should look at, take the opportunity to say, let's let's carry forth our our principles. We should be secure by default. We should have, you know, cost optimization by default. But maybe we don't have to do it the same way we did for the last five, ten. I think the critical thing is in some is absolutely spot on, uh, Lyle. I think the critical thing for enterprises is that not only is there uh, a new way to do it, in a lot of cases the new way to do it is operationally less expensive yeah. than how you would do it on-prem. If you think of on-prem and deploying security perimeters, defense in depth, uh, agents that monitor the individual resources and then poli various policies that need to get applied to the individual resources and trying to do all that on-prem and managing it with various third-party software uh, creates a significant management and operational overhead. Mm -hmm. As you move to, as an enterprise moves to the cloud and to be able to deploy their security, stand, uh, security controls and monitor that, you have the ability to do that at a, at a lower uh, price point and uh, I more mean, efficiently. I think what we're saying, maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, but what we're saying is I think you almost have to. There's almost, in the, in, speaking from our experience, right, mm -hmm. where we did make the first, the first stages were very much traditional yeah. white glove service. We're going to create a subscription. We're going to pour a bunch of VMs in, in, in it, much like we would do in a rack of servers on premises, and then we'd create another subscription and wonder why this was failing. Because you know, from a process standpoint, from a behavior standpoint, we're just replicating what we did on premises, mm -hmm. and therefore the experience of the, you know, you don't get to do DevOps at that point. You don't get to function in an agile fashion at that point. At that point, and we we almost proved that out that we couldn't do it that way. When we've shifted to a more more approach where the platform supports that, supports DevOps because it does, and it supports agile. We just have to think about the processes that you wrap around that. The 
that still perhaps need to exist in some form, but don't need to exist in the same form they were on the on-premises world, because what you end up doing is you don't manage your costs well, you don't have great insights into security, and fundamentally, you stifle innovation and experimentation. So there is that thing that ha you almost have to go do that. And that's a huge shift, and uh, you know, we're going to talk about probably culture all the way through this. Yeah. That's one of the fundamentals that needs to occur. I think the, the other funny thing that when I talk to customers, I, I always ask them, do you, do you have shadow IT in your company? And almost across the board, everybody kind of laughs and smirks and says, you know, yeah, I have shadow IT. And it's a, you know, okay, go go figure out what why they had to do that. And then you'll probably learn like mm -hmm. yeah. that's that's the pendulum that is swung yeah. because maybe you were inflexible. <laughs> yeah. And so go go like don't shut them down. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I think when I I've seen some customers that oh, I need to go shut down shadow IT. Yeah. No, they're they're doing some phenomenal stuff. Figure out, learn from them, and then figure out yeah. if maybe you could run that for everyone. Yeah. So that way, that those shadow IT teams yeah. can really just be your innovators and your yeah, whether that's a demand you know, signal, whether it you know because yeah. shadow IT is almost a demand signal of, uh, which means you were so inflexible from an IT perspective that you weren't allowing that to happen. All you're doing a lousy job of marketing yourselves. Hey, we do actually offer this service, just we didn't tell anybody about it. We didn't make it easy. We didn't make it easy. If you don't make it easy, if you, I mean, fundamentally, if, the, if you take the process to the cloud that you already have, and you just, effectively what you end up doing is actually increasing the friction to get something done, then it's super easy for somebody to go, um, IT, shared services, IT, central IT, you're no longer relevant in this conversation. I'm now going to go do this over yeah. here on my own, to your point, Shadow IT, and I'm never coming back. This is almost our, I mean, I think we realize this is almost our last chance to get this right, or our relevance in the conversation would be next to nothing. Next question. We have a large infrastructure today. How do you approach the analysis of moving that to the cloud? Rob? Uh -huh. Would love to get some more details on what infrastructure meant, but I mean, the way we went about it was, and I'm not, I, I, we evolved the way we thought about this, but this is how we started, and I'm not saying this is the best way to go about it, but because I think we, there's some lessons learned along the way, is we kind of looked at what was the lowest common denominator in our environment. Now understand, our movement was perhaps not reflective, to movement to the cloud is perhaps not reflective of the rest of the industry. Um, we did a very large, um, we closed a data center and moved that data center fundamentally to the cloud, right? So that was a forcing function? That was right? a definitely a forcing function. There were a couple of the reasons. There was a CapEx expenditure that was about to hit us yeah. that was going to be another aspect of that forcing function, yeah. let alone we're Microsoft and here's Azure. We should probably go use that. Um, so what we did was we looked at the lowest common denominator which is either the physical or a VM, because we moved a lot of our stuff to infrastructure as a service first. And all, you, all we did was look at the technical characteristics of that physical or, the, or that VM and go, does that thing, the lowest common denominator, work in the cloud, yes or no? And you can tell you know, whether it's CPU, RAM, software, ingress, egress, um, some other characteristics you might identify, and go, does that work over here, yes or no? Um, and we kind of built like a kind of a traffic light system here, green, yellow, red. Whereas green, that VM could move. Yellow, mm, it might be able to move, but we might be able to have to remediate something on the VM first. Um, or red, it cannot go from a very particular reason. Um, I would argue today that we wouldn't do it that way. It's actually <laughs> less, and it's also less relevant, because if, I just, if I'm looking at moving a VM, and we can go into a bit more detail after this, from an x86 perspective, purely from a technical standpoint, it's hard to find a reason for that VM not to work over here. But you don't just stop at the VM, right? Yep. You have to look at the application itself, right? Because I can't just move VM over here and say the rest of this app. If, if I'm moving a VM and that's one app, congratulations. But it's typically 10, 20, 30, if not hundreds of VMs I'm moving. So understanding the relationship there is yep. super important. And then, of course, you don't just stop there, because then you've got this, the impact to the service, right? Um, so does this still work? And there's a couple of ways you can do, go about that. You can use OMS, OMS's functionality that will kind of blow that out for you and understand what your service map 
actually looks like. Um, but I think, and that's the way we kind of played it out. We used Visual Studio Online to kind of like track every single application. We. Rob, we did we check to see which applications were maybe not being used? Well, that, no, that, okay, great question. Great question. Thirty <laughs> percent yeah. of the yes. stuff that we had on premises um, no longer exists anymore. Whether that's application retirement, whether it's application rationalization, we have three or four things all doing the same thing. So let's pick one and get rid of the other three that work. Um, so a lot of work in that space. Whether it's a reduction in pre-production environments so we can get teams that are more mature yeah. from a development standpoint, and perhaps Robert can talk a bit more yeah. about this, is okay, like you don't need that many pre-production environments to support this production. But also elimination of waste, yeah. right? Don't move something to the cloud you're not using I mean, effectively, don't you know? Don't give us that money. You know, <laughs> it's a silly thing to say almost as a Microsoft employee. But you know, don't move something you're not going to go use, right? Yeah. I mean, we did an effort around what we we um, we looked at a kind of a blend of CPU and RAM. Um, what we kind of called that out was like an optimal. It's almost like a utilization metric. And we called anything that was cold was under five percent utilization. Under three percent was frozen, which is still a depressing number. And looked at the looked at that stuff on premises, and yeah. thousands of physicals and thousands of VMs effectively doing nothing. Yeah. Um, now certainly there's going to be some service continuity in that and some DR. Okay, fine, push those to one side. So we still had thousands of things sitting yeah. there doing nothing. Um, so we created a process that was a scream test. Effectively, what the scream test was was um, let's pick on Joe for a second. Joe has a VM that's not doing anything, we'd send Joe an email. Joe ignores the email, sorry Joe. Um, and then his boss, Sherry, gets an email, goes, hey Joe, ignore the last email, could you do something about it please? And Sherry would ignore the email, sorry Sherry, and then we'd change the splash screen. And then we'd reboot the server every seven days, and then every day, and then every hour, over a period of weeks. Um, and the people that were, we'd kind of looked at the metric over 90 days, then we looked at the metric over 30 days, and then we looked at the metric over seven days. And the people that were naughty at 90 days were the same people who were naughty at seven days. So getting rid of the waste there. Yeah. The um, scream test, if you turn it off and nobody screams, scream, yeah. nobody. Yeah, we had a couple scream, but <laughs> not that many. And one thing I'll add on is yeah. um, most development shops are used to having a development environment, a test environment, a production environment. When you move to the cloud and you can spin up these resources yeah. you know, dynamically, and use concepts of infrastructure as a uh, 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 code as uh, infrastructure as code. Yeah. Uh, you basically just um, spin up an ARM template. You can spin up your resources, run your test suite, shut it back down, Fast. and save your money. Yeah. Um, and so versus taking a, a week to set up your test environment. Well, you know, or you're sitting there because your test environment is hardly ever used. It's only five percent yeah. utilization. Yeah. It's cold you utilize it when you need it. So it's not necessarily a don't have all the environments, it's just use the environments you have. Yeah. Um, and so those are things that you can do that the cloud makes it really easy to do. And if I had to do it on-prem, you can't do it because you got to go that procurement cycle. I bought the hardware, I might as well use the hardware, yeah. those kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, you know, this, when you move those environments to the cloud, and effectively, if you're moving VMs to the yeah. cloud, you've got a couple of strings to pull. Yeah. to play with, to, to manage your cost, yeah. right? How big it is, and how long it runs yeah. for. And the There's a few other things, <laughs> but if you can manage those two, if you can make it a minimal viable environment, make it as small as possible, and then also its existence is a, a time slice, that's great, because then you're not paying yeah. for the VM to sit there for 15 days on the off chance you might use the it. The Uber yeah. point is actually, um, to get the biggest bang or the biggest benefit of the cloud is not to just lift your your on-prem resources yeah. and infrastructure to the cloud. And that's you know one of those cultural things is take a look at your portfolio. There's definitely some you can move, uh, but think about what you can do for your your business, right? What things you can do for your business, whether it be a, a cost savings mm -hmm. or a capability improvement, and move those things. We actually, if we did it today and we, we change this somewhere in the middle where we actually have a precedent order of how we think about moving things to cloud. Mm -hmm. First thing we think about is can I retire it? Can I get rid of it? Yeah. Right? The next thing I think about is can I move it to a SaaS service? So um, there's, no, there's no reason. If that capability can be solved through a SaaS service, just move it to a SaaS service. 
then we say, then we fall back to PaaS. Can we use platform as a service to get better benefits? And then I actually IaaS is actually our less our least favorable move that we want to we oh, well, make. Well, you don't get the cloud efficiencies as much. Well, you don't, and you still got to manage the VM. You still got to you got to make sure it's patched. Those kind of things. And so um, it it really the higher up in the stack you can go, the more benefits, the more return on investments, the more capabilities that you can save, and you can actually invest that savings into your company's core business yeah. value. Would you be right. rather spending that money on core business value yep. or spent, in, and you're the architect in this conversation, like, would you rather be spending your time patching a VM? No. You know, would you like your suite, your software <laughs> yeah. engineers that work underneath you patching VMs? Yeah. No, you wouldn't want to do that. You want to be focusing on up the stack where they're going to drive business value, right? Yeah. And that technical debt, so just because I have a VM or I have a server on my on-prem, moving that technical debt is, happens more often than not. So. Mm -hmm. Um, just because I need a, I have a V, I have a VM or I have a, a server that's a specific size now in my on-prem database yeah. on my on-prem um, uh, data center. I don't doesn't necessarily need that in the cloud, right? You should take a look at that technical debt. Tech, moving technical debt costs you a lot of money, and yeah. it's not worth it. Yeah. And if you if we look at, and we've been talking a bit about IaaS and, and about what you could do if you went to yeah. cloud native. Um, you know, I know one of, Joe, one of the teams that you recently worked with was our devices supply chain. And they had a bunch of stuff on-premise databases, BizTalk servers, that they were doing their B2B device integration between other companies. And I know you did some consulting work with them and, and moved them up the stack. Can you tell us a bit about what, sure, how yeah. far up the stack you got them? Yeah. Um, and so our supply chain um, business um, traditionally would manage uh, a fairly large um, portfolio of applications and VMs. And so um, the resourcing for that group was primarily focused on, uh, well, both, both enabling code and application capability, but also um, a, a, a large resource effort went into managing the, managing the infrastructure. Um, as, they, uh, as that group started to shift towards um, the cloud and enabling their capability in the cloud, um, the conversation really um, started off and, and with that particular group, they were very, very interested in going to the cloud as native as possible, reducing their um, operational uh, costs, uh, but also a huge component because their supply chain business um, uh, a huge driver for their cloud strategy was around integration, not just internal integration, but integration to a very large um, external partner ecosystem. And so in that particular case, it was a very easy conversation to start them off at microservices and uh, software as a service. And so leveraging other third-party capabilities, leveraging Microsoft Office 365, leveraging other SaaS components like um, uh, CR or Dynamics, Microsoft mm -hmm. Dynamics suite, um, so that uh, effectively you can build out-of-box, uh, well, you get out-of-box capabilities, but you also have plug-and-play integration. And so that your resources are within the team are not uh, expending effort building something that's already there natively. Yeah. And so that's a fundamental shift. There's significant capability um, that, uh, um, that the business got. Fundamentally, the uh, supply chains running today, uh, they're seeing significant uh, benefits with their partner ecosystem and the ability to innovate quickly and the ability to integrate quickly. So as new capabilities or new technology springs up, whether it's Microsoft or whether it's one of our partners, significantly easier to integrate that capability yeah. within the overall system. Part of that, as Robert mentioned, is because it's componentized. Um, and so you can scale things independently. You can integrate independently. You can either, uh, you can also iterate independently as well. And so those are significant benefits um, that were, that, that the supply chain business uh, specifically sought out and they've realized going to the cloud. Yeah. How has accountability changed in the enterprise for application development teams? Lyle? Um, well, I think I, I touched on this a bit earlier. Um, I think a lot of what we've seen in the past is accountability is the security team is accountable for our security and risk posture for our 5,000 employees here in all the applications that we build. And, and if something failed in security, well, let's go blame the security people because 
they were ironclad and everybody had to go through them for everything. Um, I think what we've seen in what I hinted on earlier is accountability and how we do things is now down to the application development teams. Mm -hmm. So if we really look at you know, whether you call it DevOps, Agile, you know, any one of the buzzwords you throw out, the essence is that the teams that are actually developing the applications that are, are more often than not in the Microsoft on call, uh, for the software engineers themselves mm -hmm. that build the thing are on call. So the people that write the code are the people that have to wake up in the middle of the night because they might have written bad code, um, or if there was a, a breach and so a security thing happened, they probably need to know what that is and know who to contact from our security teams. But I think the accountability from what I've seen and, and the really good customers and the advanced customers that I've talked to is, it's down to the application team. Yeah. And so the application team themselves, it may be two, it may be five, it may be 20 people. You know, you think of a pod of developers, testers, UX people, they're all work and sit and understand the business application. The accountability really rests there now. And so if we look at, we have a few thousand people in, in, in Microsoft and in core services engineering, across all those teams, we used to look at, well, this team's accountable for this concern across everyone. Mm -hmm. And now it's, we have you know dozens of teams, and if each of those teams are being accountable, in our metric year on year of, well, did the, did the Azure portal dashboard say I was secure and I was optimal and you know I could have done these things in my Having, am I using, is everybody using something like event hubs to, to push telemetry to some, a data lake that maybe security has access to uh, and is running reports for the company? If we're all accountable at our local pod level, mm -hmm. then, then really we don't have this accountability of a, a department saying, well, is my department optimal? Because the answer to that is, well, let's just write a report that shows you that, but let's not go make those individual teams figure out how to answer that question on, on a way up. It's, yeah. I think that's the same thing is, you know, and, and I also talk to some people that are, it's, it's like thinking that the infrastructure people, you know, the, the server huggers that used to say, well, I'm the operations <laughs> guy, um, a developer having access to my, to my server or to my environment isn't gonna happen. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, a, a software guy saying like, oh, I need to know about security and networking. It's, we're all there, we're all working together. And if we're all accountable, our software people need to understand network and in, in infrastructure, because if you're developing software that's geo-distributed across the globe, you kind of need to know, understand network physics in, in the yep. speed of light. Um, I think accountability is down to the team, and if the teams are doing a good job, as it flows up, it should be there. And then at the, when you go up, it's really at a macro level, like, how many data centers do we have left? Mm -hmm. Okay, let's try and figure out next year, can we close uh, off a few? But let's not go push off, you know, you have to close off this data center and let me go smash all those dev yeah. teams and, and get them focused off the ball. So yeah. I think one of the things that we shouldn't underestimate is we need to make sure that good software engineering fundamentals are taken care of, Yeah. Yeah. right? And a lot of times when you're in an on-prem environment, you have this great, the great you can cheat. Of, yeah, the great wall, right? Usually the firewall that right. kind of keeps the bad guys out. Um, you really need to, to invest in your software engineers. Um, they need to take security training. They need to understand the authorization. They need to understand the authentication methods mm -hmm. between the applications. And so we, we can't underestimate that it really comes down to fundamentals from an engineering standpoint. And sometimes people get a little lazy um, when they have when they can throw it over the wall and say, oh, hey, security, you catch this, right? Yeah. Uh, we can't do that anymore. Just like the DevOps was, we can't throw it over to test, no. right? Or you can't throw it over to the software engineers. You can't throw over the security issues to the security you're, you're, team. You're spot on there. Uh, I mean, the, the thing that's really changed for us is that we now have leads, cloud leads, mm -hmm. within each of our mm -hmm. uh, organizational units, and they are responsible for interfacing with the app teams yeah. and helping them uh, be educated, have the right tooling, know where to go, get the right guidance, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it still comes down to that core level, the application team, they now have this responsibility, they need to integrate and, and, and learn and to be real honest, they're the ones who know how the application yeah. works. Yeah. They know how right. the app, one component talks to another component. And so that's the right place to have that due diligence, mm -hmm. right? 
uh, in my mind, anyway. Yeah, if you're going to make, if you're going to, if you're going to go agile, you're going to go DevOps. So fundamentally, you go here's free reign, effectively. Here's the portal. Go knock yourselves out. There are there's 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 accountability into that conversation. Yeah. Your new point is like you know there's the health and durability of that environment. There's the security of the environment. Mm -hmm. There's the how much does this cost? Which is let's be very clear, we kind of skated on that one for a long, long time in the on-premises world, given that, you know, we said earlier, we sliced 30%. Because you've never had to worry about been, it before. You've sliced 30, if we've sliced 30% of waste off the top, trust me, we can slice a lot more in, yeah. in, inside of that. Um, and when you start looking at that, 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 that DevOps mentality of, you know, what is the live site experience, and we use that word a lot, of, of that application, of that service, that's fundamental to us. And the way I like it, the way we thought about doing that is, Historically, when we had a major incident on a system, it would be, well, what was the impact to IT? It's like, I honestly don't care what the impact to the IT was. What was the impact to my customer, to my stakeholder? If my service goes down, how is Joe impacted? Not, oh, we had a blue screen. You know, that's none of the bit. That's okay. Fundamental. Okay, that's a problem. But yeah, what was the impact to the customer? So whether it's, you know, a fundamental problem with payroll which is, you know, we've had issues in that systems. We've had, you know, maybe we don't log earnings correctly. You know, or we maybe miss, you know, we're getting down to the wire where this, con this deal has to go through and a system is not supporting it. That's a problem. So making it personal when a system fails or is, a, you know, yeah. or, or is about to fail is important, right? And I think that's a fundamental shift as well. Okay. Because IT's been very good at going, well, you know, my server hugger role has been, my server was up 99% of the time. <laughs> I honestly don't care. I don't care because the service you ran was garbage. So that's a fundamental shift into that. And that's, and again, that mindset sh shift from the on-premise. I think the, the way I kind of, and it's not a great metaphor, but it's like if, if IT exists for one reason is customer experience, right? Whatever that experience is, you can go define it. But it's this, if that's the sun in our solar system, it's customer experience, there's three things that orbit that as far as I'm concerned. It's the platform. In our case, obviously, that's Azure because that allows us to do a lot of really cool stuff around experimentation, about using different capabilities to be able to tear down applications, doing some more microservices. But there's two other things, and then we talk about this as a um, agile, right? So we right. can iterate more rapidly to release functions that are more valuable to our business partners. And also the focus on DevOps. So when the live site experience is bad, that team of SWEs, of SEs, of testers, which is now really that combined engineering role we've created, is allegiant to that service and are focused on that service. Yeah. And I think, oh, please. Go oh, ahead. sorry. Yeah. No. So um, if I could add another point, as Lyle, when as Lyle was bringing up the point around um, uh, uh, application accountability. And, and you brought yeah. up live site. It reminded me of an example. I, I, um, I just, uh, uh, just prior to Thanksgiving, I was talking to a, a, a team inside of Microsoft. Um, they had just taken ownership of three new apps that were kind of reorged into the into the team. And um, this the the team that received the apps uh, experienced live site issues. Mm -hmm. One of the things that very, happened very quickly, um, and and so one of the benefits around team team accountability and DevOps is the prioritization. Uh, prioritization to fix that, so rather than depending on other teams to fix that, rather than waiting on other technology or other processes or mm -hmm. other dependencies to fix that, that team had the accountability to go fix that immediately. Mm -hmm. And so back to your example around LifeSite and the experience to the end user, experience mm -hmm. to, the, to the customer, that's absolutely critical. And then that innovation also also comes into play as well. So mm -hmm. the the team has the ability. The team's accountable. Team has the ability to prioritize and get that fixed immediately. They're not having to wait for layers of management. They're not having to wait for say layers of dependencies within other teams. Uh, they're accountable to go fix that and fix that immediately. Mm -hmm. And so significant benefit. And that's that's a that's a that's an example where they're fixing something. If you if you flip that and say I want to deliver capability, it's the same sort of scenario where. Um, uh, in the cloud, you have the technology immediately available to you, yeah. and then you're accountable to go and implement the capability. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very good. 
how should enterprise IT think about data migration and data geo-redundancy in the cloud? And you had mentioned that, Lyle, a bit ago. But just I'll open it up to whoever. How, how should think we think about that? When I, when I think about data, um, this trigger, trigger keyword for me, um, I think when, when we look at data, in particular, a lot of customers have a few, I've, I've heard them, you know, gravity wells, data anchors. Yeah. Uh, I think when you're, when you're looking at, if you're a large, medium to large enterprise, um, and you start to look at, how am I going to move to the cloud? You start to pick the low-hanging fruit. You start to move things out. Um, don't lose sight of your really big data anchors. Mm -hmm. um, and always keep those in mind, because I think otherwise what you'll do is you'll move stuff out that needs to talk to the data anchor, and then you're mm -hmm. going to start to deal with a lot of, like, really chatty or or you'll start to implement networking patterns to talk to those things. Robert, I'd really love your viewpoint on this because I think you, you work with one of our pretty big gravity wells for data anchors. <laughs> SAP? Um, SAP is one, and I know okay. we have a bunch of other really large data marts, so okay. I'd love to yeah. get your viewpoint on, on thinking about data movement when you migrate to the cloud from on-premise side. <laughs> um, well, you know, Data, whenever you're moving large bits of data, it's hard. And whether you're moving it from region to region in Azure, or whether you're moving it from on-prem to Azure in a hybrid method, uh, hybrid method, it's hard. So the way I think about it is try to m move less data, right? And so there are going to be those data anchors that we have that you have some hybrid connectivity, whether it's a VPN, a site-to-site -site VPN, or you have an express route that connects you to, to directly to Azure where you can get some quality of service around the data movement. Um, but in general, it's about moving the data to the cloud, right? And so in, when you're moving the data to the cloud and once it's in the cloud, then you're, you're free to do a few things that you weren't able to do before. So in analytics space, there's a concept of moving compute to the data rather than moving the data to the compute uh, where I can actually um, run my processing on local nodes versus having to transfer a terabyte or a petabyte of data over to move, right? And so those capabilities um, exist in the cloud and those are some of those advanced, when you think about your, your company and where they're going and, and how can I move it, that's one way. The other way I think about is, um, historically IT has been really batch oriented and some of that has been because who's going to go procure a lot of little small servers and you know I got to put it in my data center right and so I think about event driven architectures right and so event driven architectures where you're just moving small bits of data all the time versus trying to mark move a large data set at one time right and so um, it's it's about it's about moving the data you can to the cloud and using different technologies to if you can move compute to the data versus data to the compute it's about uh, minimizing the amount of data you're moving or actually do something like an event-driven architecture where I can actually move small bits of data quickly using an event hub or a service bus of some kind, um, which also gives you benefits of, hey, maybe now my system's more real-time. Uh, I don't have to move large bits of data. So those are the kind of things I think about when, when we're moving, um, and we have systems that do both. And what uh, about geo-redundancy? So most of your services have geo-redundant capabilities. Just natively. Just natively. Um, and so you should take advantage of those. Um, I think a, a nice example is, I know one of our systems, <clears throat> we, we had multiple copies of some really large SQL Server databases, yeah. uh, geo-replicated, and then we had reports running globally. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one of the people on our team figured out, well, let's, go ahead and, and essentially use the built-in stuff in, in SQL 2016 or whatever the latest version was to replicate that out to SQL Azure, yep. which then SQL Azure has built-in geo-replication. Yep. And so maybe your that, that data well does stay on-premise, but if you can figure out what the subset of data that everybody's coming to that for is, yeah. mm -hmm. replicate that out, leverage native Azure to replicate that out across now, all of those applications that used to say, well, I'm, I can't move to the cloud because I need access to that backend system. Now we've got the subset that you use in your region, yeah. in Azure already, protected by AAD. Mm -hmm. yeah. Go have fun. Yeah. 
So we have systems that are data anchored. We call them a data anchor. So that's probably where you heard that before. Yeah. That that exists, and um, but we're minimizing those things, right? There's actually very few left on prem now. I think we're ninety, like in our finance department. I think we're over ninety percent into the cloud from from a data standpoint. Yeah, I mean, if you think about like right? SA, if you think about SAP, and the big one we're talking about here is ERP, right? I mean, that's there's a bunch of other functions, but we're talking about you know from a data anchor perspective, it's 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 ERP. That's one, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's one of several. Um, you know, let's be very clear. Most of our anchors, to your point, have gone already. Yes. I mean, we don't. We're, you know, our on-premises server footprint reduction is now over 85, 86 yeah. percent. It will continue to reduce over time, mm -hmm. over the next year, where we'll get closer to you know high 90s. Yeah. Um, so there is that. You know, we're, that, that's an issue. There's two things I wanted to touch on. One, you know, when you think about DR or geographic DR, think about you know not everything needs that. Yes. So because that's you know let's think about cost here. It's like you know whether you're going to go, you know, there's you know was it. The uh, GA yeah. GA is the where you can like geographically and um, was it RAGRS? I think it's like where you can do read only geographically. Yeah. Not everything needs that, so steady on. Let's not check that box on. You'd be surprised how <laughs> many how many people when I when I when we actually start having this DR conversation. Yeah. It's around so disaster recovery means that you're you have processes built around an application that are disaster proof too. Yeah. And you'd be surprised how many people I talk to that don't have their business process, the actual oh, yeah. people that use the data or use the system yeah. to be able to function during a disaster. So yeah. um, it's great that I have disaster recovery for my application and yeah. I can move it to another region, maybe across the US or maybe in another yeah. country. But if my people can't be yeah. art disaster recovery or my or you know enabled. And you or built it for a then, zero size then user I, base. Yeah. <laughs> 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 then I've spent a lot of money, yeah. and I can say I have disaster recovery, but if a disaster ever actually hit, yeah. um, no one would be using My, my bridge, no one actually has the phone number for the bridge, so that's yeah. a problem yeah. that no one can dive into. The other thing I wanted yeah. to touch on was like, you talked about some of the different techniques. Is like, is API economy a play in here? Yeah. Where, mm -hmm. you know, not everybody needs it, because I mean, that was historically, we were very good at that. It's like, oh, if there was a database, yeah. six of us would have a copy of said database, yeah. right? I mean, because, and I mean, therefore, fundamentally, well, the data is of no longer of any value because it's, you know, we've all got a different copy of it. Yeah. So a, a, an API economy play seems like an idea in some spaces where you can, like, you know, just, hey, just call And we're pushing API. that very heavily, um, trying to push, make sure exposure value of your service through an API. Yeah. Um, historically, this IT shop, as well as other IT shops, have been very heavy in the data integration area. Mm -hmm. So they actually get a copy of the data and they do the integration and then they, um, you know, they expose their value yeah. or expose something to a user. Yeah, but I mean, you're talking about real-time data. I mean, like, that you suddenly, that's, that's off the table. So yeah. as you do that, that's done. Yeah, and so um, the reality is we shouldn't be doing that, right? Yeah. And so most instances for transactional operational systems should be using APIs to communicate. That's yeah. nothing new that's been around for a long time. Yeah. Um, we need to do it. Um, yeah. And we are, we are, we are making headways in, 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 that, okay. in that space. Brilliant point. I mean, just like, just like we were talking about earlier around application modernization as you go to the cloud, data modernization, and Absolutely. Data, yeah. data movement modernization is fundamental to that conversation. I like the idea, yeah. you, you had mentioned event-driven APIs. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, th think about um, approaches whereby you're not simply replicating yeah. the data, but how can you get the data to whoever needs to consume it yeah. in a secure, reliable, uh, cloud-native way so that you're not simply yeah. just replicating more and more data. There, there's some materials out there. I'll give you a specific example. So we have our revenue reporting system that is on-prem right now. Mm -hmm. And we actually have chosen not to try to lift and shift that application, but take a look at it. Historically, like most revenue reporting systems, there are monthly-based batch processing systems. And so this particular system would actually expose data to the end users for statutory management reporting once a day. And so it would basically take a big, big beefy servers would process a lot of data and once a day give it out to the users. Well, when we started moving to the cloud, started thinking about, well, what would it look like if we just had a running counter and this thing was automatically updating every few seconds around our revenue that Microsoft brings in? Well, that fundamentally shifts how we think about that application moving. And so when we, in, for that particular application, it's still on-prem. As we move it to the cloud, 
we've totally re-architected. We're using event hubs. We're going to get data in from a streaming standpoint. I can use the elasticity of the cloud uh, to basically make sure I have no um, data pinch points, right, to actually slow down the processing. And I can actually produce data to my users in 15 minutes, right? And so from a seller to an end user in 15 minutes versus a day. What does that do to the business process, right? What does that do to the capabilities of our finance department, of our sales force? Of the this is great conversation. That. Sorry. But we are getting close to the end of our hour. So I do want to leave our customers with one final thing. So I want to ask our SMEs, our experts, to tell us what's one tip they would like to leave our customers with today. And with that, Rob, we'll start with you. Um, that's a good question. I've been going back and forth on how to answer this one um, based on the conversation we've been having. Um, I think fundamentally, don't, don't go in it with the same attitude of IT that we've had in the past of yes, but, because we're very risk averse and here's a litany of reasons why we shouldn't go do something. Challenge the norms of how IT has run in the past. I'll give you an example, myself and a colleague when we first did the analysis of our footprint of on-premises server, we were we had like 55,000 servers. We're going to get the data right about absolutely every single one of them so we can run it through a filter and say, will this work in the cloud or not? And we were going to spend like the next six months figuring that out. Okay, that's six months of us wasting our time. The data in those systems of record has always been wrong. And in six months' time, the data in those systems of record will be wrong. So get that piece, let go of that, the, 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 the debt of the past and get it to like 70, 80%, okay, that's good. That's good enough. We can move with that. We can make the right decisions about that and move forward. And I think the re one of the reasons was is IT is very good at listening to the edge case and solving for the edge all the time. And the way I've described this is like if we were given the wheel, somebody comes to you and like, here's the wheel, Rob, and you go, hey, that's great, but we're IT. Can we get a straight edge? Just here, because that would make our life a lot. No, no, ignore that straight edge over here. The wheel is perfectly good. It will answer for 70 to 80% of the problems you have today. So get to that and then move forward. Don't try to solve for 100%, because you never will. Great. Uh, I'm going to add to that, Rob. That's a, that's a, a great key point. Um, uh, I, I would add, in terms of cultural change um, and, and uh, really, really in, embrace the cloud, for its native capabilities. Think about your employee base uh, or your vendor base and, and the skills that they need, uh, processes that need to change to adapt to uh, a digital transformation and more native cloud capabilities. Uh, for me, I, I'd probably stay on the modernization of your applications and services bandwagon. Um, when you evaluate your portfolio, Evaluate not only what you can lift and ship, but evaluate your portfolio for technical debt. You don't need to move the technical debt if you don't, if, yeah. if you know, yeah. you don't, you're just incurring an additional cost. Uh, in addition, look at where your company is going or where your um, business partner may want to go and think about re-envisioning. What would this look like if all the constraints were free? Um, because um, the procurement cycle that most people buy hardware in their, their data centers is a constricting thing and you don't need to do that anymore, right? So um, you can actually basically use capabilities in Azure to the elasticity. You can use things like infrastructure as code where you manage your infrastructure just like your code base. You can spin up environments whenever you want, uh, use them, shut them back down. Um, so for me, it's about evaluate your portfolio make sure that you're moving the right things into the right things. And so I, I truly believe in this precedent of how we would do it today, which is we'd say, hey, what can be taken care of SaaS? I don't have any infrastructure to manage. I just worry about the rules. What can I move to PaaS? What can I move to IaaS? And IaaS actually is the fallback option. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a, uh, don't forget about serverless. Um, so serverless is, is up and coming. Uh, I believe that there, um, is an open field for serverless where there is no administration and all you worry about is the uh, business rules, business logic. That's great. So a uh, couple of points here from you guys was focus on the, the native capabilities. And I would say that's, that's something that is so important when we think about that from a security perspective too. Remember 
the, all the inherent security capabilities within the native platform. We need to leverage that. Don't forget that. Uh, security hygiene mm -hmm. is so important, but oftentimes we focus so much on those edge cases that we lose sight of 80% of our stuff could be fixed right here, mm -hmm. just leveraging good security practices. So figure that out, figure out who's responsible and who's accountable within your organization, not only for monitoring, but also how are you gonna architect the different roles that are available mm -hmm. within Azure and, and leverage that to model something that's efficient for your business. I think, <clears throat> Robert, just to mention your point there, you said serverless. Um, I know the work that Joe did with the, the supply chain guys, they migrated a bunch of their mm -hmm. stuff to serverless technologies. Yeah. So uh, even so much they're using API management on top of Azure Functions, and they're using the built-in capabilities of Logic Apps to do EDI X12 yeah. conversion. And so that's, they don't have to write anywhere near as much stuff to do right. that. Um, what I would say, I think the biggest bang for your buck is, is really investing in your engineering lifecycle and I say that very specifically, not your software development lifecycle, because I think when people say that, they they forget like it. The run. It piece. precludes them from mm -hmm. from thinking about the run, mm -hmm. the live site, the site reliability, right. the yep. security, yep. the network. And so I think investing in your engineering lifecycle, um, you know, maybe every other week you you have a security and network operations, a couple developers learn something about the cloud together, but I think investing in your engineering life cycle um, in, in thinking about letting in those discussions, yeah. letting go of how you used to do things and learning together, I think will give you a huge return on, on your time and investment for that. Okay, we are at the top of our hour. I do want to thank our experts for taking time away from your day jobs to come talk to our customers. It's truly very important. And thank you to our customers for joining us today. We love the questions and the dialogue and the opportunity to come talk to you. You can find this video posted at Microsoft.com slash IT Showcase, along with a lot of other artifacts that we write about how Microsoft does IT. We write technical case studies, business case studies, other videos and artifacts. And also, you will find live webinars weekly. Please join us again and bring your friends. Thank you.